It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, and on our website, elementfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Stavokin, filling in for David Moses. With the U.S. election and a host of issues affecting our Indigenous neighbors south of the border, we thought we'd check in with an Indigenous reporter for an update on what's been happening, especially in the arts. Monica White Pigeon is a freelance reporter based in Chicago, and she writes for Native News Online USA. And welcome. Welcome, Monica. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're thrilled that you could join us. And this month is Native American Heritage Month, so... That's great too. All the Absolutely. more reason you. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got all kinds of things happening on your beat there. And I just want to ask you about Chicago. What's happening in Chicago? A lot of stuff is happening in Chicago. Um, we're kind of seeing a little bit of a renaissance, I would say. Uh, there's a lot of Native artists that have felt like they've been overlooked, uh, especially over the last couple decades. So um, a lot of people are speaking out against um, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art and uh, the Art Institute. There have been some kind of questionable exhibitions where Native people weren't necessarily consulted or they came in at the very last second before an exhibition was going to be um, released. And, you know, a lot of these artists are just fed up with it. And, you know, their art deserves a platform and a space to be um, visualized for people to experience and to really just really contemporary, a uh, contemporarize um, Native people. And also, why should their art go up without their say, you know, like some exactly. input. Yeah, and there's so many talented Indigenous artists. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Well, was exactly. that resolved at the museums? Yes, um, the one in the Art Institute, it was actually... Um, going to be some pretty uh, ceremonial and um, sacred objects that were going to be on display. And thankfully, people were, enough people spoke out and there was enough outrage that uh, the Art Institute decided not to go ahead with that, but they are trying to take some steps to um, get more contemporary Native art. But it's still a bit of a struggle and, you know, there's still a lot of a push. So they did do a land acknowledgement. So those are kind of getting really big here in Chicago. A lot of institutions are, are doing them and people are making sure they're on their emails and whatnot. And for those that don't know about land acknowledgements, it's just recognizing that this has been indigenous land for a long time. And it's recognizing the people and the tribes that were from their land originally and just showing them some respect. Absolutely. And they're in Canada as well. Long overdue. And it's just, just good. It's good. There's a real push in our country to get more Indigenous artists in the forefront. So I'm glad to know that there is action in the U.S. as well. Now, you mentioned you're working on a series for Indigenous Futurists. Tell me about Indigenous Futurists. So Indigenous Futurists is a term that came up probably in the 90s. Um, there was an author that uh, really kind of coined the terminology and I am so sorry, I'm blanking on the name at the moment, um, but it has since grown. And the real focus is on 
just contemporary Native artists who do not get recognized by, you know, um, contemporary museums um, or galleries that only focus on other art artwork. And it's amazing how many times um, people would try to say, this is American art, but never feature any sort of Indigenous or Native artwork whatsoever. So um, indigenous futurists, you know, they think about the past, present, and future. And that's like a big theme that um, comes out. But anybody that you talk to, um, particularly the ones that are have been coined as indigenous futurists, always have a different definition. And they always view it differently. But the whole point is to really just think how everything kind of relates to one another. And whether you're doing that with music or if you're doing that with um, visual art, um, cooking even, you know, like there's so many ways and so many um, different opportunities for folks to tackle that. Absolutely. And you're working on a series. Will this be podcasts, writing? Just a writing series. So I have about three or four articles uh, dedicated to Indigenous futurists, but I'm always looking for more. And if more folks want to reach out to me, I'm always welcome. (laughs) Do you have a couple of favorites? Uh, Yes, I really love um, Andrea Carlson's work. She's an Ojibwe artist. Um, It's very, she has a lot of detailed things. And she also writes articles. So, you know, she's very intelligent, um, well-spoken. She has... (laughs) She really points out things in a completely different way that I don't always um, see things as. And I, I just love her her perspective. Um, really challenges and juxtaposes um, imagery together. Um, also Santiago X. He is kind of a jack of all trades uh, artist. He's also a musician, actor. Um, he has a design degree with architecture. So he's kind of all over the place, but he has just been so influential and just really uh, outspoken, especially against um, mascots, particularly the Blackhawks here in Chicago. Um, he did a show where he collected a bunch of their jerseys and uh, has a trash can <laughs> display where it's like, okay, this is where, where we actually need to put this stuff. You know, kill, yeah, kill the mascot. <laughs> kill the ma- absolutely. There's a big push on that here too. There's stop the mascots. And we've been covering the Chicago Blackhawks story. And mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so yeah, we're an indigenous station and we definitely are in line with what you're saying about mascots. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's end that now. Okay, now you're covering quite a few stories that are really interesting, I think, in terms of Indigenous artists being brought to the forefront and in film, television, visual arts, et cetera. And one is Sovereign, the first Native TV drama is in development at NBC. Tell us about that. Uh, So that that is huge news because there has never been a uh, prime time drama that has been dedicated or focuses primarily on uh, Native issues, uh, Native family. You know, it's really also showing um, that we're contemporary people. People are still here. Um, I believe the show is going to be on the reservation in um, Arizona or New Mexico. So it's definitely focused on a Southwest family. So while that you know doesn't relate to everybody, but it's still um, an amazing idea to have 
you know, just some of these issues brought up and a lot of different natives from all over can relate. Well, what's the general plot? The general plot is to show um, how this family is dealing with just contemporary issues, like what's going on with the world right now, and um, really showcase that, you know, despite all that, people can still hold on to certain traditions. Um, They can tackle certain family issues, like Native people are just like everybody else, essentially. And the, the title, Sovereign, you know, it also touches on, well, because Native people have these treaties with the U.S. government, you know, they can still operate as an own entity and your own government and everything. And certain issues that come, um, like a lot of misunderstandings that the rest of the country may not understand, like, this is how things operate here. Um, I'm, I'm excited that they may even touch on some missing and murdered women. Um, if you heard of the missing and murdered oh, indigenous oh, yeah. women movement. Yeah. yeah. And how that actually, where it's kind of a double-edged sword while so, um, having sovereignty is really great, but people also tend to take advantage of that. And some, somebody could come onto native land, mess with some native women, and then um, you know, leave it up to the tribal police officers to deal with it and not get necessarily get in trouble with the U.S. government. So it's like, it, I'm not sure that, that the show would actually go into that, but- It sounds um, almost documentary. Exactly. Yeah, like that's, that's a whole that's other conversation. A whole other conversation. And yeah, that's a, it's a huge issue here as well. It's a North American issue, the exactly. missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And yes. All right. So another one we've been following closely is that Marvel is coming out with a native comic book. So update us on that. Yeah, actually, I just received my copy. So um, yeah, I read through that. So there'll be a review coming up pretty shortly. Um, I think it's great. (laughs) Honestly, I love comics. I grew up with them. And I love that there is one that's specifically about um, Native characters. And Marvel, like, as many people don't, probably don't necessarily know how many already established characters there are, um, particularly with the X-Men series. Uh, there's a lot of Native X-Men uh, mutants that, you know, have these kind of significant powers or unique abilities. Um, and still trying to figure out their place in the world. And X-Men already kind of deals with just like um, social justice and other issues and acceptance and, you know, people trying to understand, you know, or um, yeah, really try to understand what they don't understand. So it's kind of like a perfect setting for um, indigenous voices to be heard throughout that. Um, But Marvel has some other series like Daredevil. Um, There's, um, this character Echo that has a really cool storyline too, and just kind of them dealing with, on top of being having these special abilities, how are they dealing with the rest of the world and being an indigenous person? So, uh, this what I have read. It definitely touches on some very unique um, storylines. I highly recommend it. Um, it's still like for the comic book enthusiasts and nerds yes please go check this out mm-hmm. <laughs> it touches on so many fun issues the drawings are beautiful and the storyline is just really great Which, are the storylines kind of political um, book or are they just 
flat out fun. You can geek out on it. <laughs> well, the the first one is more of an intro, so you kind of kind of know about certain characters that have either already been established, but they definitely touch on certain issues. Like, well, actually, speaking of the sovereignty thing, um, there is one in particular that um, shows an X Men like looking for like after there's a tussle like at a fairground, but it's like on tribal land, and you know, the local government is trying to go find this, this uh, native kid that was involved. And, you know, the X-Men kind of come in and we're like, okay, let's see how we can help and how we can, you know, diffuse the situation. Um, and then another one is pretty fantastical. Like they actually go to another planet, but it's a world that is um, uh, not necessarily like colonialized or anything like that. So it's really, really just kind of like remembering like, oh, there was a time before, you know. Um, well, what was part of the reason for the Marvel com- comics, the indig- indigenous issues, because so many indigenous characters in the past were were not presented in a very good light was that part of the idea behind it to go like hey no yeah yeah um jeff uh jeffrey Virgie, he is a northwest coast artist or salish i believe and he has has really been a big proponent in making this happen and really trying to push um like there's a different way that you can present comics so he actually had a really cool exhibit at um, uh, the National, the Smithsonian in New York, and it was um, this, this Hall of Heroes, and basically took like all the Marvel characters and put them in Northwest form line, and it was just it's just a beautiful exhibit, and I actually believe the Smithsonian bought that piece. Um, so he has some images throughout the book, um, but he kind of helped bring this all together and really push Marvel. Um, to really get like hire as many uh, native writers and get as many artists as possible to be involved in this project. And I think they're doing a great job. So. Yeah, there are a couple of Canadians who've been mm-hmm. who are illustrating for that issue. So it's going across North America again, which is fantastic news. So mm-hmm. good. Well, I'm glad I look forward to your review on the comic book. Looking forward to that. And if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can find us on the Radio Player Canada app and on our website, elementfm.ca. That is E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. And my guest is Monica White Pigeon. She's a freelance reporter with Native News Online USA. And her specialty is arts and entertainment. We're doing a deep dive on what's happening there. Okay, so another film coming out. This is called We Can Survive Anything. It's a Blackfeet film about 1700s smallpox epidemic. And good timing since we're in our own epidemic here in 2020. <laughs> What's that uh, film about? Is it a documentary? No. Uh, so Sui is actually the, the title of the film. Um, it, it, it takes place in 1700. So it's actually, it started off, the director told me, as uh, uh, the Blackfeet Nation being introduced to horses. 
And coincidentally, like the more research that they ended up doing about it, the more they found out like, oh, and this also kind of coincided with a smallpox outbreak. So the movie kind of transformed into a telling about a pandemic. And the irony, of course, was not lost on everybody no while kidding. filming. <laughs> exactly. Um, but they, they, had, they had some really good uh, moments there while filming and, you know, made sure safety was number one priority. And why I think this film is actually really important is because it involves so many people from the tribe the tribe to actually be part of the film like to actually learn this is how you set up shots this is how you do the sound editing this is how you you know look into this so they really tried to get as many people from the tribe uh to be a part of the movie so not only are the actors all indigenous um they also tried to get as many to be on the crew and um did you know if we might see this on Netflix? Like where will or when it might be released? I know they're in post-production right now. So they filmed up um, all the all the filming got wrapped up in August. So they're in post-production. And they're hoping to have it ready for next year for film festivals and such. Exactly. Um, they have not said just exactly where the platform will be, but I will... Once I find out, I can definitely well, report right. on that. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure. If anyone knows, it's going to be Monica White Pigeon. And yeah, yes, for sure. Out. I mean, it's just so interesting that they're working on this film during COVID-19 about 1700 smallpox and the mm-hmm. epidemic that happened then. It's kind of a reminder that, you know, we're not the only people to be going through a pandemic for sure. Exactly. And you could survive. I mean, that that's the ultimate message, like, despite all that and despite you know all all the sickness and everything and you know there was actually um while filming the producers told me they they scouted a location and that was actually um one of the villages that had been completely wiped out and they were actually able to film there or around that general vicinity yeah so are these is there anything like how do they know it's the village because it's from the 1700s the village uh, exists? Kind of like uh, passed down knowledge. And um, I, I think they may have found some remnants or some like really old like stonework or anything like that. But um, yeah, I think it was more like word of mouth. Like the, everybody kind of knew, like this is the general area where this happened. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, another really interesting story that in, in, involves Canada's prison system. And this is Indigenous artist Tank Standing Buffalo who is sharing his experience inside Canada's prison system through an animated platform. What can you explain that one? Yeah. So he, he ended up um, being asked by a nonprofit if he really wanted to tell this story, which tank is such a sweetheart (laughs) and kind of a shy guy. So I'm really happy that he ended up doing this. Um, So he, he, this is his first like uh, like long, uh, it was about eight, it's about an eight minute clip or so. Um, but it talks about his time when he was young and, you know, being a little reckless and hanging out with some, you know, his friends were kind of like, okay, let's go do this, like pull off this little robbery and stuff, but then they get caught. And it and really, this, this is a true story. This is a true story. Yeah. Okay. So it's based on a true story. And, um, 
it goes into how art ended up really saving him during this horrific time when, you know, he's just this young kid, he's put into solitary confinement and for being just somebody who was the Operating getaway driver. Oh my goodness. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it touches on some very, you know, um, very tough issues and you know this ongoing problem with uh, the Canadian prison system so I'm, I'm hoping that it reaches out to a lot of people I mean it's a very stylized very funky um, kind of goes a little bit more into some some horror type imagery but it ends on a, such a positive and light note that I really think people should check it out. No it's incredible when you when we talk about people who've gone through things and survived, like we talked about the smallpox epidemic, and now we're talking about totally different topic, but an indigenous Canadian who was in, in Canada's prison system. And now he's coming out of all of that hardship with a positive message. It just shows the human spirit is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're very resilient. And especially when you're, you're young, <laughs> you can survive quite a bit. And I, I think it's a good reminder for us that, yeah, we, we can survive this. Like, it may seem like the world is crumbling right now, but it's also a really great time for people to reflect, to, you know, really recenter and just try to figure out, okay, what's really important here? Okay, so for the, from pandemics to food sovereignty, which is jump topics here. The production of culturally appropriate foods through ethically sustainable practices, the recently released film Gather is an ideal introduction. Tell us about Gather. Gather was very fun. (laughs) It was a very fun um, documentary. I watched it on Amazon Prime, so that's available for folks. I believe it's free right now. Not sure. (laughs) But anyway, that, that has been... That was that was really that was a really eye opening one and just the way different people view food and how there are certain things or way um, certain ingredients are presented as if they're not necessarily from these lands and you find out like no like native people have been using this type of food and these ingredients for a long long time but nobody really gets credit or like those types of cuisine isn't presented in a certain way so. Sovereign is like a good intro into like, this is how people used to just, you know, go out and, you know, they, they would look at these herbs and different things and be like, oh, we can definitely use that. Or we can use these seeds or this is how you create, you know, transform it into something else. So it goes, it touches on that. It also touches on, you know, protecting um, rivers. And like, there's a group in California that is really just all about like trying to protect the salmon and make sure that the waters stay clean. And um, other folks in the film are also just pushing out, like, here's what native cuisine looks like and how, you know, you can do this at home. So I love talking to chefs because <laughs> they, they've just been great. Like the sous chef in Minnesota, um, I believe he has a food lab that he's about to start uh, pretty soon. I'm not sure if the pandemic kind of threw off those plans, but um, you know, he, he, he has, uh, some really fantastic ingredients and, uh, a great cookbook that's out there called Sue Chef. So S I O U X chef. <laughs> so I, like how he pl- I like how he played on it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. 
No, just, just speaking of cuisine, just a little off topic here, but are there a lot of indigenous restaurants, cuisine to choose from in, in the Chicago area? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> and I not want them to come over here. Not really. Um, I think it definitely helps if you have tribes or a reservation in your state. So Illinois, unfortunately, doesn't have any tribal land or tribal sovereignty here. So, um, you know, kind of the um, uh, uh, one, of, one of the terminologies people refer to is like uh, Chicago is like an urban res. <laughs> so it's just kind of like a culmination of all these different nations and intertribal folks kind of working together. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, we'll try to push for some more people and chefs and like, okay, well, if you want to make a bakery or if you want to have a restaurant, like, yeah, let's support you. So tell me about yourself. I just want to know your indigenous background. I am Prairie Band Potawatomi, uh, African-American and German. So you know, quite That's the mix. Quite <laughs> yes. Okay. And your family, were they all from the Chicago area? Like, how far back do you go? Oh, actually, um, my dad's side is from Michigan, and they all still live there. Um, my great-grandma, Ellen, she was part of um, the boarding school days. And um, so for those who don't know, like, boarding schools have a very different connotation for Indigenous folks. Um, we were, yeah. we had the residential school system in right. Canada and mm-hmm. yeah, why? Yeah, okay. yeah, we're, yeah, where they were taken away. So um, my great grandma, she really didn't want to see any of her kids have to go through that. So you know, she actually told them like, listen, you know, when she when she got married to my grandpa, my great grandpa, she said, well, we have to act white. You know, we have to like she didn't pass down the language she tried not to do much of the cultural practices but um you know her daughter my grandma is a very fiery woman <laughs> and made sure that her kids knew exactly where they came from and tried to reconnect as much as possible with our cultural background and heritage because you know she just wasn't having that <laughs> um so ever since then, you know, um, like my dad and I have tried to fight for that and try to make sure that um, people know about our our heritage and such. And I've had, like growing up, my father would even come to my school and talk to the different um, students and everything, just kind of giving them a more um, more appropriate or accurate um, representation of what Native people mm-hmm. For sure. I'm speaking with Monica White Pigeon. Monica is a freelance reporter for Native News Online USA. She's based in Chicago. And you're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Also, you can find us on the Radio Player Canada app or on our website, elementfm.ca. I am Kathy Sabokin filling in today for David Moses. And Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. It was really great talking with you. You are listening to 106.5 LMNFM, 95.7 in Ottawa.